<laughs> we can't start with just laughing. Though. I don't mind starting that way, though. It's kind of fun. I just keep thinking about, yeah. about yeah, when you were in high school and playing Trivia Crack and how... I've got to be honest with you. I, I, I'm sure I played... I don't have explicit memories of losing in Trivia Crack. I just you. remember but there, were, but I there were a few students who would challenge me in this little game, and it was a big deal if they could beat me. It was a big deal. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, well... That's because your father's well, it was it was that I know a lot of really dumb things about nothing. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, that's a great way to explain trivia. Yeah, exactly. Right? I, I knew. Yeah. I knew things that couldn't be applied practically, but I knew them. And yeah, that's saying something. Did, now, would you say that same something about lords? <laughs> I I think I know a whole bunch of things about lords. Um, yeah. But, but they aren't No, the, the things about lords <laughs> that I know are, are useful because lords is a beautiful place of pilgrimage and a place of grace, whereas the trivia yeah. story in my head I don't think has been a font yeah. of grace for me or this anyone is reminding else. Me, this is reminding me of a Jerry Seinfeld comment. He did an interview with New York Times about how he writes jokes, and he talked about how as a comic he was paid to spend a lot of time on things that were totally useless, unlike the New York Times, which is paid to spend... Uh, well, I guess a lot of times still, but on things that are useful. Yeah. He said it was like the exact opposite. Yeah, that, that checks out. So we're, so are we saying we're Jerry Seinfeld? Is that what we're saying? Uh, I think to call ourselves Jerry Seinfeld is, is a bit too much because I think his uh, his jokes are funnier. Um, I mean, not much funnier, but like we're, we're pretty funny. Yeah, we're, like Seinfeld, I think he's... <laughs> He's got a talent. I said, no, they're not, and immediately wanted to take it yeah. back. <laughs> well, fortunately, this is a podcast, and we can edit our content. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Well, I was really excited. Uh, after we finished recording with our guest to find out that before she came on, she had to Google podcasts to find out what they were. Yeah, which is, which is awesome. Well, I thought it was pretty funny that... The first one that popped up was Joe Rogan. <laughs> that was great. That was great. But if she hadn't told us that after after we finished, I never would have known because she's such yeah, a natural. It was great to have her. Yeah. I may or may not may or may not have invited her to be a uh, uh, you know occasional third. Killer. Yeah. She, it was it was amazing and uh, yeah. I, I just loved having her. So we had the chance uh, in this episode yeah. to interview Marlene Watkins, who's the author of Everyday Miracles of Lourdes, 20 Extraordinary Experiences Along the Way to the Grotto. If you've not been to Lourdes or heard about Lourdes, I'm just going to tell you, you got to go check it out. At least, um, at least get some, some information about Lourdes, about St. Bernadette, and her incredible, incredible experience uh, as a visionary senior blessed Virgin Mary there in France. Um, and then to hear a little bit more about what happens in Lourdes. But Everyday Miracles of Lourdes is available at uh, sophiainstitute.com and uh, also in the EWTN uh, religious catalog. But really, Marlene, was, she was just an amazing guest, and she's got some, some tremendous stories that she's telling. Absolutely. I think that uh, all of you are going to really enjoy this episode. I guess that was to our audience. I almost never drew... I, that, that might be the first time I've broken the fourth wall. And uh, audience, I'm really proud of Matt for doing that and talking <laughs> to you. It's about time he acknowledged your existence. <laughs> I've been hiding from it all this time. <laughs> anyway, listen. If if you don't hear this episode and and feel some tug to go to Lords and and to see our yeah. lady to to volunteer to and just to experience the grace that is, is so available there, 
Um, I, I hope that's what you receive from this episode more than anything else. Amen. Hey, Matt, you excited about this one? Oh, I'm so excited. This is going to be great. Marlene Watkins, welcome to The Tangent. Well, thank you. I'm so excited to, to meet both of you. This is going to be fun. So we're talking today, uh, not just, well, obviously it's The Tangent. We're going to talk about lots of things, but we're going to start by talking about your book, Everyday Miracles of Lords: 20 Extraordinary Experiences Along the Way to the Grotto. Marlene, before we do that, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm, I'm just a housewife, and um, I'm not a trained writer or um, in any way credentialed to be authoring the book. I'm just <laughs> an ordinary person who had the extraordinary privilege to witness these amazing, um, miraculous intercessions, and um, then was able to capture them and 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 put them in a book. I actually asked for my name not to be on the book because I prefer it would be Lord's Volunteers because it's really through that grace that all these wonderful things happened. I personally know all the people in the book and was there to witness it. I'm not writing other people's stories that I heard from someone else. Hmm. Um, so that's kind of how the book came about. But um, we have five sons and um, 16 grandchildren, and I'm from uh, central New York, upstate New York. And I, I had never really been anywhere um, before, uh, much to speak of. So uh, before I got married and got married young, and then I really didn't know anything about Lourdes. I don't know if anybody listening maybe doesn't know, but uh, when my best friend had her business card plucked out of a fishbowl and she won two tickets anywhere in Europe, she asked if I wanted to go to Lourdes. And I said, I love that story with the three little kids. But that's <laughs> Portugal, different century, different message. But hey, it's the same lady, just a different dress, right? Just so. a different dress. Yeah. Now that is the way to talk about Marian apparitions. When I was in seminary, I remember a priest came in to talk to us, and he was he was giving us kind of like the the intro to what parish life can be like, and he tells us the story about there was a rosary prayer group that met and. A lady came running into the office uh, in the parish shouting, Father, we need help, we need help. And he jumped up and he ran down the hall and there were two women punching each other and rolling around on the floor in this wrestling match because they were having a fight over who was more powerful, Our Lady of Providence or Our Lady of Guadalupe. <laughs> he had to explain to them that it's the same lady. <laughs> So, Both I don't know, Our Lady of Lourdes or Our Lady of Fatima, what do you think? I mean, who would win in a fight? Um, <laughs> I don't think she feel, would be fighting, so it's fine. I don't know. I feel like Bernadette, you know, being just kind of a, a, a mountain woman uh, from the from the hill country of the Pyrenees, I think you know she got, probably could have gone after those shepherd children in Fatima. I don't know. I mean, they were pretty strong, though, too. They're out there taking care of the sheep, and, like, we read about King David and how he was, like, killing lions and bears and stuff, so I don't know. It'd be pretty evenly matched, let's say. Yeah. This is how you saw this interview starting, right? <laughs> yeah. Who would win in a fight? Say, I mean, the simplicity of the children in Fatima and of Bernadette is what just speaks to the purity of their souls and their, you know, what perfect witnesses they were that Our Lady chose. And, you know, a couple of things it reminds me of. And one is, by the way, St. Catherine Labouret, when she was um, throughout her religious life, nobody knew she was the, the novice from the Miraculous Medal. 
And um, she did tell her spiritual director, you didn't listen well and do everything that she asked. So she's down there talking to that little girl in the mountains. So she believed it was, um, you know, that's how she referred to Bernadette as the little girl in the mountains. And Bernadette was very um, pure and simple, as were the children. But um, I think that that's who Our Lady always chooses as the unlikely and the um, the unspoiled, you know. So uh, Bernadette was, you know, I think that her not being learned and being, you know, pretty straightforward. And, you know, I, I first thought when I was learning about Bernadette that, you know, they say that she's a simple girl and people mistook that to mean that she wasn't bright. It didn't mean that. It means she just wasn't complicated. And we have a hard time understanding that today because we are so complicated with technology, mm-hmm. with everything. And so she was simple in that way and she was uneducated. So that doesn't make her stupid or, you know, slow. It just means that she was just a simple country girl and and that's where Lady chose. But a funny thing about that is we'll be on Air France and especially when we were first beginning and we'd have all of these people on oxygen and people in, you know, quadriplegic and wheelchairs and people who are dying with, you know, infusion therapy and, you know, people on ventilators. And I mean, we're bringing very seriously sick people. And I'd sometimes be in the galley with the, the Air France crew and they'd say, you know, why are you, why are you coming here with these people? I say, hey, the mother of God chose your country. I, there's, I had no mm-hmm. say in this. <laughs> and, you know, they'll actually be in tears by the time we finish the conversation when they realize this is the place that, that was chosen. It could have been anywhere, but it's in the beautiful Pyrenees Mountains. Not so easy to get to, but I really believe Our Lady chose wisely. Still, it really is a beautiful place. Now, I'm glad you bring up uh, uh, St. Catherine Labre and the, uh, and the Miraculous Medal. Because I, I've always, I've always made the connection, but never been able to fully articulate what the connection is. So you got the miraculous medal that Saint Catherine receives in uh, in Paris on Rue de Bac, and it says around the medal, around the figure of Our Lady, O Mary, conceived without sin, pray for us who have recourse to Thee. And then, of course, when the Blessed Mother appears to Bernadette in Lourdes, uh, she says, "I am the Immaculate Conception." So we see that that connection of, of the Immaculate Conception right there. Um, is there anything else that Catherine would have said to connect more of, of that beautiful message of the Miraculous Medal to the message that Mary brings at Lourdes in the Pyrenees in France? That is such a great question, Father, because actually the Church connects these two things together for us in the 100th centenary of the dogma of the Immaculate Conception in 1954, they strike a medal with on the front is the miraculous medal as we know it. But when you turn it over on the other side, it's Our Lady and Bernadette in the grotto. So they put the two things together. So uh, the dogma is, of course, something we must believe as Catholics. And they did a study um, several years ago, not too long ago, though, of Catholics coming out of Mass. So that means Catholics who are attending church. And they asked them about um, the Immaculate Conception. And it said that nine out of 10 Catholics thought it was the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So they confused the Immaculate Conception of Mary conceived in the womb of St. Anne to be the perfect and pure vessel to give birth to Christ. And I have to say that's most of us, whether we went to Catholic schools or not, that's a really common. So when we look at the dogma in 1854, what happens between, as you said, the medal in 1830, which by the way, it wasn't called the miraculous medal, but so many miracles happened that they call it the Miraculous Medal. And so that's in 1830. She says, strike a medal in this pose, and they do. Miracles happen. 
that helps the Holy Father and Holy Mother Church to know you're on the right road by proclaiming this dogma. It's not something they made up in 1854. It just affirms what the church has always known for, for almost 2,000 years. It's just that when we start questioning it, they clarify it for us. So it's something where it's just, we might know something, but you know we might have to put up a sign because people are coming that don't know the area like we do. Or So it's something that's affirmed for us. So this appearance in 1830 in France um, to Catherine Leberet is really profound in these graces that they see the miracles happening. Then, of course, Our Lady comes after the dogma only four years later, and she says, I'm she, I'm her. I am the Immaculate Conception. So that really affirms. And it's not just her name. It's who she is. And mm-hmm. that's how it all kind of ties together with that medal. And it was that's a great question because they really are linked. And we find that, that nothing is by happenstance in the church or in grace. Everything really does have uh, a provenance, so to speak. It does have a history. So Yeah. Good and that's, re- that's really cool because, you know, you see in, in Scripture, when Christ is performing miracles, a lot of the time, it's to reaffirm the faith of the people, you know. So you're seeing that 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 like miraculous uh, pattern maybe is reaffirming this doctrine in in hindsight and affirming it in foresight in a sense, you know. Um, I also want to mention that I, if I'm remembering correctly, I think it's Saint Maximilian Kolbe um, was baffled by that statement of "I am the Immaculate Conception," right? Like that—that that blew him away. I think. If I, am I remembering that correctly? You're shaking your head. Well, he's, <laughs> of course, there, we have to go back and look. That you know, there was there was the question of like, how could that be um, possible? And I think we looked at Don Scotus, also a Franciscan, right, Father, that mm-hmm. that explains that it's sort of like getting a vaccine or an inoculation of grace that um, predisposes Mary. Um, before she's born. So that explanation is somewhat simple for us, theologically probably much deeper than that, but I'm sure it is. But uh, for us, that made it more understandable. And Maximilian Kolbe um, maximizes on that, if I could say. Um, And it becomes really profound. Of course, all his writings are so beautiful. And you should probably know that I'm a secular Franciscan, so I just called out Uh, two Franciscans. Fantastic. (laughs) I attend Franciscan University, so I don't know. That, I'm a Franciscan student, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, but there, and you know, it's interesting what you tied together is, you know, Jesus didn't need to perform all those miracles. He could have given everybody a miracle, but it was the proof. That's how we know it's from God. It's something that that we can't do. We as humans can't do this, so it must be from God. And that's what the Gospels are, all these stories of Jesus showing us that he's the Son of God, showing us that God is God. But it's not just for 2,000 years ago, and then they rolled up and left town and everything's over, um, and Easter, and then we move on. It, these Gospels, you know, God still loves us. He's still, you know, interceding for us. He's actively in our lives every day, but we just don't always realize it or recognize it, or... We'll call it a God incidence or a coincidence, but and there's different kinds of miracles. But the ones that we're talking about, like the gospel, the blind can see, the paralytic can, you know, can walk, or the 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 dying are resurrected, or they are cured. 
those are the kinds of things that happen at Lourdes that makes it such, you know, a, a, here she says her name and then look at these incredible miracles are happening at the time of the apparitions. And, you know, we could go to Lourdes and it's the only place in the world where there's a medical bureau that examines the people who claim that they experienced a miracle. So they come and say, oh, I was cured. But the doctor there, I love what he says. He said, you know, I'm a, I'm a different kind of doctor. Most people go to the doctor when they're sick. I meet the people when they're cured. He said, so his job is almost twice as hard because he has to prove that they were sick before. And, you know, there's this really strict code they use. It's the Lambertini criteria. So it's to be a very serious disease um, that didn't receive uh, intervening treatment that could cure it. It has to be, um, you know, an instantaneous, sudden and complete cure that could not have happened by itself. So there's a strict set of rules that they have, the whole list of this Lambertini. And that's what they use when someone's going to be canonized for a saint. They say the intercession of a miracle. So they set up, the bishop was so wise. I love that wisdom of the, of the church. They set up this medical bureau and people come in and then they do this exhaustive examination. And there's over 7,800 cases that are there on file and people can go and look at them. And I love that the new bishop and the, the medical director say, come and see, come and take a look. And you know, if, if somebody out there is thinking, well, you know, I, I don't know about this. They might even be wondering if the gospel stories are just parables. Don't feel bad. You could be the next great St. Thomas. You just need to go to Lourdes and put your hand on one of these 70 people the church has proclaimed as miracles or go in and read these records of the 7,800 people who made claims. And that's what's so astounding is this committee, this medical committee, they're not all Catholic. This isn't some Catholic yes stamp. They're scientists. They don't even use the word miracle. They said, we didn't learn that in medical school. They leave that, thanks be to God, to the church or the bishops. They just say science can explain why this man can see or they can't. Science can explain why this person's still alive or they can't. And then once they say science just cannot explain this, then it's up to the bishop where the person comes from to, to proclaim it a miracle or not. And quite honestly, the church, it's, it's an exhaustive process. After 70, they don't feel the need to keep doing it, but uh, sometimes the people just cry out and say, this is too awesome for me to deny, and I'm willing mm -hmm. to sacrifice my privacy so that other people can put their hand on me and know that the Gospels are really true and they're still happening. Wow. So we go from Bernadette receiving these visions, seeing Our Lady there in the grotto in Lourdes, uh, and then she keeps going back. We can read the whole story of Lourdes elsewhere. We don't need to, to get into the entire history here, the, the whole narrative. But at that point where the, the whole crowd is gathered there and she, and she hears drink, and so she goes digging for water and then covering her face in, in mud and something that seems really ugly. And then this, this man sees the water bubbling up and bathes his child in it and child is cured from, from that miracle until today, people have been going to bathe in the waters at Lourdes. They've been going to ask our lady's intercession. Um, how did you first get to Lourdes Marlene? Well, that's a good question. I just want to say one thing, if I can't father yeah. about her name, because Bernadette doesn't know the name of the lady. So it's 18 times. You're right. They meet in 1858, 18 times. And Bernadette doesn't know who she is. She calls her Akerol. That means like that one or that other, the thing in her language, her dialect. And um, it's on the 25th of March. We just had this beautiful feast day not too long ago where um, it's where the angel Gabriel, of course, comes. That's the feast day in the church. But on the 25th of March, um, Bernadette asked the lady three times and once more because the priest wants to know. Wise pastor. 
Who's this lady that wants a chapel procession? And when she says her name, Bernadette had never heard it before. That's the beauty of she chose this simple, uneducated girl who couldn't really, she couldn't read Latin or French, didn't speak French. She spoke the local dialect. So when she runs to the priest and blurts out, that's the name, he knows that's the only person in all of history who, who's, you know, who's immaculately conceived. So the church knows right away that's, that's who the lady is. And so during out these apparitions, different things that happen, but they're really a pretty simple yet very profound story of these 18 heavenly visits. And how I went, of course, is my best friend had her business card plucked out of a fishbowl and um, she chooses Lords. And I, of course, didn't, as I told you at the beginning, didn't really, I used to know them, you know, I think my older sister knew Bernadette Moore and the saga Bernadette was a black and white movie, but we didn't have television growing up. So it's, you know, I think for the next generation that doesn't white the, watch the black and white movies, but um, I really, a lot of us, I think over here, think of Our Lady over in Europe is, you know, which one is which? It's, you know, uh, you know, not always not always well-defined for us. So I think for me, I didn't really know too much. So my friend and I, uh, first we go to Navarre, actually, and meet Bernadette, so to speak. For those of you who don't know, she's probably the most, in my opinion, the most beautiful and corrupt saint. That means she's not embalmed. She's not refrigerated. Um, she just never decayed. She's simply beautiful. And if anybody wants to know how that happens, of course, there's, you know, it's an incredible story. But, you know, the church protects um, the, the holy so that people don't desecrate them. And they also want to prove that Bernadette really was a real person. She really lived. And this is her body. So they, they exhumed her when the cause was moving forward and they discovered that she was incorrupt. So they keep her in a beautiful glass um, shaza casket and people go and pray in front of her in Nevers. So um, when we refer to Bernadette in that way. So we went to go meet Bernadette, so to speak, at the convent. And uh, really to know Lourdes, we need to know Bernadette. It, it, you've got to have that that big piece of this um, this really simple, beautiful puzzle at Lourdes. And so then we did go on to Lourdes, and um, I had a really profound experience there. I'd had some really um, difficult struggles in my life and difficulties, and I'd had surgery. There was just a lot of things happening, and um, we went over there, and I came back, and my husband says it best. He said, you know, he says, it's like I took my broken wife to the airport and I went back and picked her up and it was like getting a new, you know, a new and improved wife. He says, it's like a free upgrade <laughs> at the airport. <laughs> so, man, there's a lot of men out there probably like to go and they said, well, there's probably a lot of women out there like to go pick up. And <laughs> yeah, it's probably both ways there, but at any rate, so it just was that, you know, profound wow. and, um, you know, it really, it is life changing. And when we hear that people say, oh, it's life changing, that's what's in the stories of the book is these 20 completely different people that have nothing to do with each other. And each one of them healed from a very different, um, you know, some of them did go to the medical bureau. There's two in there that, that did go to the medical bureau. Um, and so qualified to have a dossier or a file opened for the investigation. Um, but the others, it's not about them going to the medical bureau. And that's what this book is different about. When we say an everyday miracle, there's the proclaimed miracles in Lourdes. There's 70 of them, as we said. And then these are what we call every day. They're happening all the time. There are these incredible stories of life-changing experiences that people had there. And I'm, I'm one of them. And and that's how I went, you know, I went back the next year, never thought I'd go back hmm. um, because there's two women and they were desperate too. And we just, you know, had to um, at least go there and try. And from that, it's just more and more. That's how Lord's Volunteers is born. Because there's these associations of the church 
where there's the, the Hospitality Notre Dame de Lourdes, the Hospitality of Our Lady of Lourdes. And that's the association of the church where they welcome people from all over the world coming. And then there's the hospitalities that bring the sick to Lourdes. There's between 240 and 270 of them in Europe. And there was never one outside of Europe hmm. before us. So for the very, very sick, where people really have needs or they just aren't able to make that arduous journey by themselves, that's what a hospitality does. We have volunteer doctors, nurses, and lay people, and priests, Father. That hmm. you know, it, it's you know, they're, you're the runner on the ship. If we, no, you know, they, no priest, no pilgrimage. I mean, everything can go wrong on a pilgrimage. The yeah. flight can be delayed. The food can be terrible. Everything that could happen, they lose your luggage. But if the priest is right, the pilgrimage is right. <laughs> you can have everything be perfect. Your luggage is on time. The food is great. You know, but. The, the priest's got to be right, it really. And, and that's really the spiritual grounding of the pilgrimage. It's, just, it's a holy journey. And yeah. another thing that's in common of these 20 people in the book is they they didn't necessarily go see, seeking for themselves. A lot of them came to help others, or they just had this beautiful grace experienced along this way in, in a different way. So it's, mm. uh, and they're all very humbled. Like when I called them, this one chapter in particular, um, you know, she had, uh, at 15, they weren't Catholics, they weren't Christians, and uh, she's from Scotland. And there was actually a strong anti-Catholic sentiment um, back in the 60s and 70s and after the troubles and over there in Ireland and Scotland and England. And um, so when abortion came out, her family considered it a, a solution, not a problem. They did, They had no knowledge of it. And, you know, for all of the young people, like you're, you're, you two, Father Sam, you're pretty young. You know, we that's even younger. Yeah. <laughs> that's way younger than me, you know. Yeah. Well, we're of the I'm of the generation where this was happening when I was in high school yeah. and they were telling us it's a clump of cells, you know. We we really didn't know as laity. And a lot of people saw it as a theological problem or a political issue, a medical problem. But no medical, you know, this is for the doctors to figure out. So this poor woman is 15, and she's dragged in to have this abortion. And she said, I'm not a Catholic or a Christian, but I just know I, I, this is wrong. And, um, you know, so she went, I mean, when I say dragged in, her hair got pulled out of her head and falls on the sidewalk as she's going in her curls because she just really resisted this. And she said there was always a hole in her, you know, just a hole in her. So um, she does wind up converting and becoming a Catholic later in her life, brings her children into the church. A lot of different things happen. It's in the book. But the bottom line here is that until she goes to Lourdes as a volunteer to help others in the baths, her arms are in that water all day long. It's not until she goes in the bath herself. And she said, a liquid grace filled mm -hmm. the hole for the mm -hmm. first time. And it was life changing. She said, I measure my life as from that day before and that day after. And her parish priest, by the way, Father Sam, writes a beautiful letter and says, you know, they sent this, this woman to Lourdes to volunteer the parish, you know, to help support her financially to go. And he said, she returned to illuminate our parish. And he sent money to pay for other women. And I could never tell her until he died recently and I said, Father wrote this beautiful letter and made a, a you know, for me, it was a huge donation, $900. It's not like he's a rich priest. You know, I don't know any rich priests. but um, That's a good thing. It, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, but he just wanted other women to do that and yeah. um, to be able to have that privilege. But my point here is at the end is when it came time to write the book, I called her and said, 
you know, I promised our Lord a long time ago I'd write these stories and I've never done it. And now I really think I'm supposed to write your story and and begin to really write the rest of this book. And uh, she said, well, I, I have to call my adult seven children. She's got seven adult children. I, I have to call them mm. and tell them my story and then see if they're agreeable to have me put in a book that somebody might read that we know. I mean, that's pretty. So she said, I got to talk to my husband. Let me call you back. And so she talks to everybody, calls me back, and she said, this is so profound. This is so incredible of a grace, so amazing. I can't deny it. I'm so, um, really what it is, she's very humbled by it that God gave me this grace. And she goes, maybe there's one other woman out there who has a hole in her, and she just needs to find a way to fill that hole. And so... My family agrees you should write the story. But I mean, so that's so that's like the people in the book, they're none of them planned on being in a book or none of them planned on having these great graces in their life. Yeah. Um, and there are pictures in the book, by the way, of every single person in the book. There's a picture of that's them. Beautiful. They're real people and they're right now. So any of those, you know, St. Thomas is out there, future St. Thomas is, these are real people and you can yeah. <laughs> meet them and talk to them. And when we go out on the book tour, we're trying to have somebody from a chapter with us everywhere we go. Oh, that's awesome. Wow. When's the book tour start? It started this weekend. Oh, congratulations. So it actually started in France on February 11th. We launched the book in okay. France. On the Feast of Our Lady French of Lords. That's, that's a good time to do it. Yeah. yeah, perfect timing. And then we went from across France and up into Paris because that's where our French publisher is. So it's in French and English right now. It's 50% translated right now into Spanish. It will be finished and out very soon, within a, uh, hopefully within a few months. And then we'll go on to the other languages, be Italian, German, Mandarin, and, and some others. So um, it, wow, we wound up great. going there. We go, we, we, yeah, we went to England and Ireland and then in Scotland. And then we came here. We started in, in our home diocese in Syracuse, New York. And now we're going to be moving on. But if you want to invite us somewhere, we're happy to come. Mm. And we have right. these different... <laughs> He's writing it down. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we'll figure that out. All right. That'd be great. But Book you know, tour. I think it's significant that you know. I mean, I can I can talk about the twenty people, and I know them. And there's things that aren't in the book, of course. Um, little details that are, are, you know, some of them are really funny, and they're they're just amazing stories. But to have somebody who's a chapter in the book there tell their story. So when Sheena, the woman I was just talking about, she's from Scotland, born and raised there. She married a U.S. Marine when she was 19. So she, her son, when she called and said, I, you know, Marlene would like to write this story. Um, he bought her the ticket to come over and speak in England and Scotland wow. for his mother to speak. He's so, um, I want to say proud. He's so humbled and proud of his mother. And yeah. um, what an amazing woman she is. So, wow. And she is. I and she's it. very, very private. Like, she's really shy. I, you know, in the book, I say she'd be the one in the furthest amen corner, you know, <laughs> they hit down south. They said the amen corner. It's always got somebody in the back that's, you know, trying not to be noticed. And she's painfully shy. But when she speaks about this, it just glows out of right, her. It radiates. It's amazing. It radiates. Oh, that's beautiful. So your first trip to Lourdes was more on a personal level. You got to go with, with this friend of yours, sort of by chance, not really by chance, of course, we know. <laughs> um, but you, you had that that opportunity. Our Lady drew you to Lourdes. Let's say it that way. That's a better way, right? And so she she got you to Lourdes, and and you had the the chance to experience those those graces. But then on that next trip, you yourself ended up volunteering. 
Right. Yeah, well, <laughs> I guess you could say that. Because, <laughs> of course, I didn't really, and I don't know if anybody out there that is aware, I don't know, Matt, are you, um, we've had almost 1,000 Franciscan University students come with us and volunteer in Lourdes. Wow. We're at 900 and we might break 1,000 this year. COVID would give a, a blip to us. Yeah, but, sure. Um, so the students that gaming would come with us and serve in the piscines and um, meeting the baths. So, of course, when I went uh. there, and I think most pilgrims, I don't know if you know this, Father, but... I thought the people were employees there. I thought they worked there. I had yeah. no idea that they give of them. They pay their own way. They come there and they give up their vacation time and they serve at the train station, the airport, um, at the processions, in the grotto, in the baths. They give a week or two weeks of their time every year and come and do this. It's just amazing. But I had no awareness of that. I just thought yeah. they all worked there. And I think most people do. And one woman had, had said to me, my my friend said, you know, oh, uh, you know, she, Marlene's going over. She's going to volunteer. This is, a, you know, like the next year. And the lady looked at me and she shook her head. She goes, mm, I don't think so. <laughs> my <laughs> friend said, no, she is. She goes, no, she said, uh, they don't speak English. And she says, yeah, that's why she's going. They need people who speak English. Yeah. She looked at him and she says, nah, I don't believe it. She goes, they're really holy. <laughs> I said, well, that's the beauty of it. Yeah. It, you know, I love that people think the service, that the people there are holy. We're, it's such a holy service. And I love that we're anonymous and people don't know. And yeah. You know, it takes regular people like us and gives us this holy opportunity. So I did go back and we were in line at, you know, a, a doctor friend said later, it's like in the gospel where they're trying to reach the hem of Jesus or just even trying to get to his garment. They're kind of pushing and shoving in the big crowds. It gets like that at Lourdes where there's just thousands of it people. It gets crazy. Trying, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Trying to get in the baths. And, um, and it was like that. So we were in line for four days and we just couldn't get in. And it's the record number of women bathed in the baths in the history of the baths in Lourdes, Ascension Thursday, 2001. Okay. Um, but I don't know this at the time. I just, it's just, it's just so crowded. It's backed up to the grotto. And so, man, I don't know if, man, have you been to Lourdes? I have not. Oh Father, gosh, have fuck. you been to Lourdes? I've been to Lourdes twice. And actually, that's what I was excited about when you were saying that like the first time you went, you went as a pilgrim, but the second time you ended up volunteering because the first time I went, I went as a pilgrim. And the second time I went, I went as a chaplain for a pilgrimage group that was going to serve. Yes. And so I, I had the chance to work in the baths and to uh, to do some great stuff. So, wow. But I, I, I want you to, to finish this story, Merlin, and then I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about my, my first time because it involved Franciscan students also by accident. Um, you know, so I think I'm the gonna, Lord I'm is calling me to Lourdes. Well, man, I'm, I'm just saying. You've got no choice, man. you got to go. <laughs> yeah, we're going to fix this. <laughs> okay. Can I bring my off. sister? She really wants to go. Absolutely. Well, okay. I'm, I'm all in. Lauren's and in so, for sure. Yeah, so, and, we, and we're, we're, our schedule's out this year. So you, you can come this year. And I do want to hear father about how you went with as a oh, channel. It'd yeah. be wonderful. So I, so we waited in line and then I was trying to, um, I was getting worried. We're going to have to fly back. And this is the whole purpose we came. And, uh, you know, it's, there's a lot of complications to it, but so I go over to the man that's kind of like guarding the place like Fort Knox. And, you know, we were like, we'd get all the way up to the, the you know, be the next person to go in and they'd shut it down right in front of us. I mean, we were that close, you know, at least three or four times. And it got a little rowdy, I have to admit. It can because people want that grace. And um, so it, it was chilling. So I went over to beg the man and I said, look, I will give up my place because I was here last year. I had the privilege of being here last year. I'll give up my place, but these two women have to get in. So I go over to this guy and 
I'm trying to speak into him in my really bad high school French. And he just, I, I get nowhere. So then I write in the palm of my hand, 5,000 kilometers. And then I'm flapping my wings. Like, my, you know, like we flew here. It's, you know, I'm, I'm bagging him. And he says something under his breath with an Irish bogue, and I busted out laughing. I said to him, you don't speak French, do you? He said, no, he's from Ireland. So here I am trying to, I just goes to show you. So, and he calls over to this woman, and he says, uh, listen to the plight, this poor girl, she's come so far. And so I'm begging her for these two women. I said, I'll give up my place. And so she looks at me, and she said, um, well, can you touch your toes? Now, that's a strange thing to ask, but I didn't question it. I bent right over and touched my toes. And um, I say that was, you know, 15 years and 50 pounds ago. But, you know, so I've got all that French bread since then. But um, and but I, I, that would I think, <laughs> poor father, but I think, you know, um, she was wise. I didn't understand what she was asking. What she wanted to know is, was I physically able to bend over? Could I be helpful? And number two, would I do whatever was asked of me without question? So I passed that test, didn't know it was a test. And she said, come with me this day, bathe the sick and dying. And I give you my word, those you love will come in. Mm. And so I went to them and I said, don't get out of this line. I'm going in the inside to pull you in. And so they brought me inside. And, um, you know, I it was, it was kind of conspiracy. I, I knew it was like a little conspiracy going on because she was, I, was a very big hush. And she was kind of hiding me. And so they put a wet apron on me. And then tossed me into the sea of women. And then they came through and they, they, you know, they give you a number of where you're going to serve, you know, number seven, number 10, number eight, whatever it may be. And she came out and I was hiding behind everybody because I kind of knew I didn't belong there. And, um, and she, but I did, I knew I, I knew it was, I didn't, I didn't know what was going on. I knew I was right to be there, but I knew that I didn't fit. Something was, you know, happening. And so she tilted her head and she looked at me. I was, the, I was all alone. It was by, I, everybody else had been called in. And she tilted her head and she said, okay, four to me in French. So I went to Bassine four. And the, every time, Father and man, every time that I go to Lourdes, that I go inside the beds, I kneel down and kiss the floor there in number four. Hmm. Because that's where Lourdes volunteers is, you know, the, the inspiration, the holy inspiration. And that's where I really had a great grace in my life. So did you want me to talk about that, Father, that was in the book? Well, I was just so moved, like reading that that part of your story, that you had this this healing experience the first time you went and i, I i've got to say having gone there that that first time um i went as as a priest i was five months ordained i think when, when i went um i had uh so i was ordained and i was uh in a summer assignment and then i was going back to school so i was i had gone back to rome and kind of i realized that i had like a full week before class was supposed to start and i had nothing to do because as a as a priest a student priest we didn't have the normal uh, fall workshop schedule that all the seminarians had. So I was looking for something to do. And a friend of mine said, why don't you go to Lourdes? It's like, it's a perfect time. There's probably cheap tickets you could get. So another friend uh, gave me the name of a hostel someplace and was like, go stay there. And they had a room. So I, I got a room at this, at this uh, volunteers hostel. So it's basically a place where the people who are there to volunteer would stay. And they happened to have a, a room available. Nobody asked me if I was there to volunteer or anything. They just said, yeah, we have a room. So, okay, I got, I got the room. And then um, found a ticket. I got, to the, I got on the plane. And as I was getting on the plane, I realized that there was a priest and two nuns who I knew who were on the same flight. 
And I went, I had no plan. Marlene, this was, I was so irresponsible. Matt, when you go to Lourdes, we're going to make a plan. Renee is going to be very happy because there will be a plan with like actual, uh, an itinerary and everything. I basically had a suitcase and I got on a plane with like no clue how to get there. I was flying to Paris. I had no idea where I was going. Thank God this priest and two nuns were there because I said, hey, we rented a car. Come with us. <laughs> so I was like, great. That works out perfectly. So I hopped in their car. I totally needed a ride. <laughs> <laughs> no, it gets better, though. I hop in their car and they drive. I fell asleep in the back seat and woke up in Lourdes. Like, <laughs> It was the greatest thing ever. Like I just got in a car and ended up in Lords. I, I don't remember anything from the drive there. It was great. You sound like Father Fulton Sheen, Father. <laughs> <laughs> he would do those kinds of things. Just yeah. Was, okay. Well, this is going to happen, and I'm I'm kind of a planner under most circumstances, and for whatever reason, with this one, it was just super free. So I get to the um, to this hostel find my spot uh and it was getting late at that point so i just kind of like walked around and, and had a look at kind of where i was basically and figured out how to get from the hostel down to the to the grotto um but it was getting late they were closing up the the sanctuary and everything so i, I went to bed got up super early the next morning and uh walked down prayed at the grotto which was just really cool going there really early while it's still dark and there's nobody around so i said my prayers okay and then i said i I need coffee before I'm going to be able to do anything else. I need coffee. So I got up and I, I found this, um, this cafe and, and I went in and I got a cup of coffee and I saw this table of American college students. And, uh, being, being in Rome, I got to be uh, pretty adept at identifying American college students, um, because they, they always wear the hoodie from the university that they go to, or they wear North face jackets. So you can always find the American college students. So I was like, all right, there they are. And so I kind of walked by and I said, good morning to them. And they stopped and they looked at me and they said, father, are you a priest? I said, yeah. Have you said mass today? I said, no. Would you say mass for us? Sure. Let's go figure out where I can say mass. <laughs> now, what year is this father? This would have been 2008, fall okay. of 2008. So we go and we, we go down by the, by the grotto to see it. And there was no English mass that day. The only masses that they had were in, I think in French and there was a German mass or something. I had missed the Italian mass and the Spanish mass. I could have kind of celebrated at those or something. So then we go into the Basilica and I, I found the way to the sacristy. And sure enough, they had these little chapels that we could use. So I had these four college students with me. I said mass for them. And then uh, they said, well, what are you doing for the rest of the day? And I said, I don't know. I'm just kind of here for a few days. And it was it was very freeing, very very freeing. So we we made a plan later on to meet up and uh, and join the the rosary procession that night. So we, we prayed the rosary together in the procession, and then uh, the next they asked if if they could meet up with me the next day for mass again. I said sure. So I met up with them for mass, uh, and they brought eight more of their friends who were also <laughs> Franciscan students who were studying abroad and, and who were there. Now, they didn't say anything about volunteering, so I'm a little concerned that you said that the, the Gomming campus students would come to, to Lourdes and they would volunteer and, and they'd serve. These kids, I think they were just having a good time. Uh, but I said mass for them and it was, it was really nice. And then I noticed uh, there was a mass at the, uh, at the grotto, so I went down for that because it was in Spanish and I thought this is my way to get into the grotto, like actually in there for mass. It was like you can, you can pass through, which is fun, but I don't want to just be in the line of people passing through. I want to actually get there for, for mass. So I joined for that mass and there was this mad, huge group from Madrid. 
I had spent a summer working with the missionaries of charity in Madrid. So here's this massive group of people from, from Madrid who were there. And I'm looking out and I see in a wheelchair, one of the men who I used to take care of in Madrid at the shelter that the sisters ran. And I see him sitting there and I'm like, I'm, I'm confident. I'm pretty confident. I'm less confident now, but I'm pretty confident that that's, you know, that's Paco <laughs> over there. And I wasn't totally sure. So anyway, I, I end up, you know, finishing up the mass and this woman comes over to me from the group and she said, father, there's going to be a concert over in this building. The same guy who is doing the music is going to do a little, a little concert for our group. Um, you should come. So, all right. So I go over to the, uh, I go over to the, to the concert later on that day and I decided to sit in the back. I was going to meet up with the priest and the nuns who gave me the ride, um, treat them to dinner because they, you know, let me sleep in the car while, while they did all the work. Uh, <laughs> so I, I was going to meet up with them. So I go over to, to this concert and I sit down in the back because it's close to a door. And I figured I can just kind of do the quick exit thing. I'm sitting by the door and uh, concert starts and they're bringing people in. And I, I can't quite see up in the front where the wheelchairs are or anything, but I could see they're bringing people in and there's Paco again in his wheelchair. And I'm like, I definitely, I got to get up there and see him. But before I could get up there to see him, I notice uh, this, this guy walk back towards, towards the back and he sits down uh, off to the side. And I realize he's sitting next to a priest and I'm there. And then there's another priest, like another 50 yards to my right, also sitting there. And this young woman starts walking over and she looks over at him. And then she looks at me and she comes over and she sits down next to me and proceeds to, in Spanish, go to confession. So <laughs> I was in this moment of like, uh, I'm definitely in the wrong place. I got to get out of here. <laughs> so, <laughs> Absolution granted. Move on. So, <laughs> I got I got out of there as fast. I didn't even stay for the concert. I was like, I, got, I just got to go. I got to get out of here. So the next day, I had the chance to go into the baths. And like your story with an Irish guy controlling the line, I got in line and was patiently waiting my turn. And I figured this line's probably going to be three, four hours. I'm, I'm here for the day. As long as I get into the baths, I'm going to be happy. And then I hear this voice at my elbow, and it's this Irish man. And he's walked over to me, and he says, Father, Come with me, please. And I said, no, I'm, I'm going to wait in line. He says, no, Father, come with me. I said, well, it, it's, it's all right. I'm, I'm, I don't mind waiting in line. He says, Father, get out of line and come with me. <laughs> and oh, okay. And so I follow this man, and he takes me past the – I have to walk past the entire line of people who are waiting. Marlene, do you have any idea how embarrassing this is at this moment? He's, he's walking me past actual sick people, people who need real miracles, and he's walking me past them. I'm going, what is happening here? I'm, I'm not comfortable. This walks me right in. Not even like, I thought for a second I was going to sit on one of the benches just outside the baths. So we get there, and he says, just wait here for a second, Father. And so I sit down on the bench, and he goes through the curtain, comes back out. Father, come in. I was in line for all of like the, the longest time that I spent was actually standing in line before he noticed that I was there. So I think three minutes I was in line and he brings me into the little, they've got a little waiting area outside the bath. Right. And I go in and he says, all right, father, you're right here. So I sit down and uh, you start getting ready. And the man sitting next to me had tumors, visible tumors all over his body. And he asked me in Italian, he said, Father, is this your first time? I said, yeah. He said, this is my seventh time. And he says, I'm not asking for a miracle for my body anymore. I'm going, I think this is why I got to skip the whole line. I need to hear what this guy has to say. And I just realized, like, this is, this is where I need to be. He says, no, 
I've come to understand coming to Lord that there's grace that I can win for other people. And so I don't know if the Lord will ever heal me of this. I'm still here. It's been seven times. I've made seven trips, all for the same thing. But now, no, Father, now I'm here for whoever needs the grace. And I was so moved by that, just to, to hear this man with like such real faith. And then I watched him go in. I watched him come out. And he had this like, the biggest smile on his face. And it was like the people in the baths knew him, like they had hung out with him before. It was, it was so beautiful to see. So I got to go in. And as I'm walking in, this volunteer comes in. And he looks at me and in a very American accent, hello, Father, where are you from? And so I, I told him where I was from. And he says, oh, great. And then he mentions where, uh, I can't remember where it is now, where he was from. And I said, oh, do you know Father so-and-so, who's a guy who I knew in seminary? He goes, yeah, he's my pastor. <laughs> <laughs> so again, not coincidence, not even small world, just like this is all God ordained, all these things that Our Lady is, is putting in place to make this happen. So it ended up being a really, really beautiful, beautiful day. And I was thinking as I, as I got out of the baths and had this beautiful moment in prayer and to kind of reflect on what this, this sick man had said, um, I was walking over towards the, uh, towards the procession that night and just all this stuff playing in my head. And I felt a hand physically move my head to look to my left. Now, there was not actually a hand, but like I could feel this hand. And I turned and I looked to the left and sitting in the wheelchair is this man who I took care of in Madrid. And he looked at me and I looked at him and he said, what are you doing here? (laughs) (laughs) And then he called me cowboy, which was what the old men at the shelter would call me because I was American, of course. And being from Mm -hmm. the East Coast, I really embraced the cowboy aesthetic uh, tremendously (laughs) there, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) So we got to sit and talk for a while. And it was just, it was really beautiful to reconnect with this man who I had once helped to care for. And he was really excited to be there in Lourdes. So that was my, my first trip. And then the second one, I went back as, as a chaplain for a youth pilgrimage that was going to serve. And I got to tell you, I liked the second trip even more than the first. You know, to, to be there as a pilgrim was beautiful. And, and it was a very, very powerful thing. But to go and serve the sick and, and the people who were there on pilgrimage who needed assistance, ooh, that was a that was a whole different thing. It's so, profound. Yeah, it's like it's like being deeply inside. The- so there you are in piscine four, on the women's side of the of the baths, with that inspiration to bring other volunteers. Marlene, tell us about Lord's volunteers because this is this is an amazing an amazing piece. So of course. I think none of us really realized that about hospitalities and what those are. There are associations in Europe. We wouldn't really have any way of probably knowing much about them. In fact, before Lord's Volunteers, there's about 8,000 members of the Hospitality Notre Dame de Lourdes, the Hospitality of Our Lady of Lourdes. And after, there were only 16 Americans out of 8,000 around the world. But most of them were Europeans, in all fairness, only 16 Americans. And at one point, you know, people would say to me, uh, do you know Sue from Seattle? And I, I tried to explain to them if I lived in Seattle, I would probably know Sue. Seattle's <laughs> a big place, a big city. Um, but, you know, it's say, no, I, I don't. And one time I was in a bistro and somebody said, oh, that's Sue. I said, well, Sue, so aren't you from Seattle? I said, are you Sue from Seattle? She goes, are you Marlene from New York? I mean, that's how <laughs> few of us there were that when we'd meet each other, it was a big deal. And so they really, really needed English-speaking volunteers at the time because, 
um, about 50% of the people who come to Lourdes speak English as a first or second language. It's the most commonly spoken language in the world. Hmm. So um, they really, really need it because only about 10% of their volunteers, it means about 800 spread over a whole year, would come that could speak English. So uh, that was, you know, but it was a real grace. I would have never thought to, to start anything or do anything like this. It was a total grace. I went to kiss the floor um, after the service because that's what we did in the beginning. We kissed the floor like Bernadette kissed the ground in the grotto. And it's it's holy ground where miracles happen. And and as I went to kiss the floor, I felt like a whoosh, like a you know, filling of my expanding of my chest, and I promised our lady. And that kiss, I promised her to come back in one year with ten good holy Catholic American women. I don't know why I said that. I didn't buy either of the tickets to go there. It didn't work. I, I mean a housewife. And I went back and said to my husband, it's for me to make such a promise like that without even talking to him about it. I said, I made this promise. He said, you know what? I don't know that lady in Lords. My husband's a convert. Because I don't know the lady in Lords. He goes, but I got a great debt to her. And I think mm. you should go back and give back in and, and Thanksgiving. And so I didn't know who the the 10 would be because, um, you know, after 911, now nobody wanted to go anywhere in an airplane. Right. And, you know, especially because we're from, you know, from New York. I'm not from downstate, but from upstate. But, I mean, we really felt the, the the depth of that, I think, as all Americans did. But um, but it all, it all came together through a series of other events that would be booked too if there ever was one. But through a series of events came together and we did go. And it was it was just extraordinary, but it was difficult. I mean, we, we knew nothing. We knew less than nothing. And there was a lot of challenges, but there was just such a grace in it. But even then, right from the beginning, we were always bringing somebody with us that was sick. Every single time they're just it would happen. So from the beginning, we wanted to bring young people and the sick and those who volunteered and a priest. It just always came that way right from our beginning. And to share the grace, the message of Lords, because so many of us didn't really know the message of Lords. So that was right there from our very beginnings. And we had a wonderful bishop here in the diocese, but I, I was afraid to go meet him by myself. I mean, my husband go. I mean, most of us don't go meet our bishops. We never right. see our bishop and, you know, like maybe at a confirmation across the room or say thank you very much, but not really knowing. And um, tried to explain to him that this, um, what was happening and that there were people that were coming and we were volunteering and we were bringing sick and, you know, about being a public association, which I didn't know that's what it was called initially. Just a hospitality is all I knew. And what a grace it was and um, tremendous. So now since then, we've brought over almost about 7,000 people. Wow. Um, and, you know, thousands of volunteers. And, you know, I really believed in the beginning, like it takes me a long time to figure things out. I just, you know, that's one of the things they said in the beginning. Like, um you know, we know this must be from God because we know you. You're just not capable of doing this on your own. And I'm not. I remember, you know, when I, my two oldest sons, the first time they came, they looked around at what I was doing. They said, Mom, do these people know you can't even find your car keys half the time? You can't even find your car in a parking lot. And I said, well, <laughs> here I have. I've got all these doctors and nurses and sick people and volunteers and youth. And they look around. They said, you're running this thing? Do these people know this? And I looked around. And I said, well, I didn't drive here. So I was where the keys were in mailer at that point but you know so i mean it was like they said it was because of my inability they knew it had to be from god because there's not possible that i you know i didn't know doctors and nurses who would go and 
and and do this. So it was really, it was a grace, all the people coming. It's still a grace of people coming together and meeting Franciscan students and, and having them, you know, come from Domingue and from Ohio and just all the incredible things that happen. And the proof was that it, that's not something that, you know, I was cut out for, but everything we need was always there. It was always a grace. It's just a matter of trusting that if God brings you there to do that, then he's going to give you the grace and everything you need to do that. Now, so are, you, was, are, are you working with like the American branch of the Hospitality of Lords? Is it a, a separate organization that, that you're part of now? So um, each of the ones that are in Europe, the 240 or 270, they are um, public associations of the Christian faithful. So okay. canonically, they're under the authority of either of their bishop or if they're national, underneath the authority of their council of bishops, or they could be, uh, if they're, for example, Carmelites or Franciscans, they could be under their superior. So each of these associations, it's they're in the church and of the church. Mm-hmm. So um, we are a public association of the Christian faithful, and people come with us from all over. So, for example, there's no um, Lord's Hospitality in South America, Africa, or Asia. So people come with us. Uh, It was the first time sick people left China and went to Lourdes. Wow. So we had a medical team. We went over. It was, you know, the Beijing airport is this, I mean, the technology there, you know, they, they have Walmart, you know, they have everything like, like, you know how we have Amazon and you can get delivery in a few days. Their, their delivery is twice a day. You order something in the morning, it's there by noontime. You order something by noontime, it's there by five. I mean, their, their technology is just absolutely incredible, yet their Beijing airport has one wheelchair. That's it. That's all wow. there is. We had 16 people in wheelchairs. The captain of the plane at Air France said to me, I saw that mistake on the paper. I said, oh, that's not a mistake, sir. I said, we're getting back on this plane in three days with 16 people that need a wheelchair. He said, well, I, he just didn't believe me. And the flight attendant did this. She goes, oh, I know who you are because you always make all the planes late going down to Poe, down to the south of France, <laughs> Paris. So, um, but at any rate, so we had a little bit Chinese, you know, wheelchair drill there because we only had the one wheelchair. And that's just an, a that, Chinese you know, wheelchair drill. Did you just say a Chinese wheelchair drill? <laughs> that's so perfect. You've it was actually in China. <laughs> One wheelchair and 16 people, and they don't have anybody that even knows how to use the wheelchair because people that are need wheelchairs, they're, they're not perfect. They don't travel like that. Ah. They're not out in public. So we are, I, I guess, you know, we're North American volunteers because the priest who came with us the first time had a Canadian passport, and we were America North and South. Our Lady of Guadalupe, if you look at our pin, it's the colors of Guadalupe. Mm. It was the Americas, but he was just very hurt that he... he so I had to go back and put the word north in there for him. But people come with us from South America and Africa, Uganda, because they wow. don't have anyone. And we help and teach them. And then they can go on and do their own. So Miami, um, they're now they're doing their own. And we're so we, we're trying to hope that there's others that will come and follow this beautiful grace. And, um, you know, in Europe, there's there's a Lord's hospitality in every diocese. And bishops say to me, you know, um, I love this pilgrimage every year because it's when I am with the people of my diocese. I'm with the young people. I'm with the broken people. I'm with the volunteers. I'm with the sick, the dying. He goes, I'm with my priests. He said, I get to be see my entire diocese in a little in this little group. When they say little, they mean 800 people or 1,200 or 700 or whatever. But it, it, it gets to really be right in there. And I mean, I'm talking to this bishop is he's stripping the beds because it's time to leave. I mean, he's in there helping. So it it's every diocese pretty much across Europe. But and we hope someday maybe it's our time now. I mean, a hundred years ago, 
Yeah. We'd have to get on a ship and, and take a month to get there. Now, now we could get on a plane and be there on the East Coast. We could be there in six, six seven hours. hours. Yeah. yeah. And then you just get down to Poe and, or to Lourdes from there. But, you know, and of course, the night, the Sovereign Order of Malta, you mm-hmm. know, it, they're, they're not a Lord's hospitality. They invented hospitality. <laughs> the Knights Hospitaller, I mean, when people say, well, the Lord, you know, the Sovereign Order of Malta, I said, please, we can't reduce them to that. I mean, they're right. almost a thousand years in, you know, they, bringing the sick to the Holy Land. They made these little places, respite, where they could stop and care for them, which we now call those hospitals because they were the Knights Hospitallers, hospitality. They were all of that. So they, yeah. of course, come over They and they come in May from all over the world. So in May, they're there for the Western and, you know, the Federal Association, the American Association. Um, they're in Lords in May, but they're there with everybody from Asia and Europe and all over Malta, everywhere. Yeah. So um, they are not a Lord's hospitality. They're much greater and bigger than that. Yeah. That was my they're second trip was, was with a, a group of, of Malta. It? Yeah. Yeah. They're the sovereign order. So that's that's different. Um, they do so much in the Holy Land and so many other things around the world, but they do go to Lourdes, of course, every every May. Yeah. It's it's a powerful experience. I mean, to then to then get in the baths and to and to be helping people or to help unload the trains as as people are coming and help help people just get to where they need to be. It's it's incredible. And then you see that just the the depth of faith that people have as as they're yeah. coming into to just be experiencing that. And then you realize that as you're standing there, um, we had one night where our, our assignment was to hold the ropes for the um, for the, the procession. So just so that the procession would be orderly, they basically have, instead of velvet ropes like you'd have at uh, a, a nightclub or the, the, the zigzag thing that you get at the airport when you're going through security, they just have lots of long rope and they're like okay you hold that end and i'm gonna go stand over here and hold this end and then uh i'll tell you to to either move forward or back up and you basically just do crowd control with this rope and so we're standing there and there's all these people and you realize just by doing this we're helping the procession to stay orderly and by keeping the procession orderly it's beautiful and because it's beautiful everybody who's here is having a different experience of prayer and so you realize that just by being there to serve, you're, you're making a, an enormous difference. Now, if somebody wants to go to volunteer in Lourdes, do they have to go through one of the hospitalities? Or can they just well, like show up and say, I would like to help today. I'm here. Well, that's a great question. And back when we started, you know, 20 years ago, there was no website. You couldn't find out. Mm. Everything was in French. There wasn't, uh, we could, didn't have anything in English. So it really was difficult for people to go. Now, of course, there's a website of HNDL, Hospitality Notre Dame de Lourdes, so that you can contact them. And I should say that, um, you know, what we were doing and how we were volunteering, you have to have a letter from a priest or a pastor saying that you're trustworthy to care for the sick and the vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Um, with us at Lord's Volunteers, uh, I would assume also probably with the Sovereign Order, you have to have uh, would be your safe environment training from your mm-hmm. diocese. You know, uh, you you don't have to have that for the Hospitality Notre Dame de Lourdes, but to come with us, you would or Sovereign Order. Um, and they take the letter from the priest, and they take that very seriously. It can't just be a little stamped thing that right. this priest is vouching, saying you're trustworthy. Then you register ahead of time. And um, you go over and they have housing at a reduced rate. They have a cafeteria to eat to make it because we don't have time to sit in a bistro and have lunch. There's no time for that. So you have to go through um, fast food, so to speak, um, which is still pretty good. And, yeah. um, and then you go to school. It's called formation, formation, and so you must have gone to school, Father. And that you know, it's it, you go to the school. If you return, you go every year for five years. And at the end of that five years, you can um, choose to make a lifetime commitment, where you will mm. 
promise to serve for the rest of your life whenever you're able. Some years you can't, oh, wow. you have to take care of your own family. Some years you can go twice. So whenever you're able, you know, the beauty of this, the Hospitality Notre Dame de Lourdes, when it's founded, you know, when, when Lourdes is first beginning and the, you know, when I say first beginning, it's just after the apparitions, the bishops approved it, done an investigation. They were laying the train tracks in 1866 into Lourdes. So people were always homebound when they were sick and dying. If you look at really older houses, they have the double doors. That's so your casket could go in and come out. Mm. So if you were living in a wheelchair, you stayed in your house. You were not out and about. When the miracles began happening, the sick started leaving their houses and it changed. They started going out in public. So the train would arrive, the whistle would blow. And the good people of Lourdes, these humble, holy mountain people would stop in their fields, stop in the mill, stop in the store. They would stop what they were doing and they would go to the trains and lift these people off that had mm. been put on back home. And they'd bring them down to the grotto. The bishop watched this and he said, this is a grace. Mm. Become an association of the church. It's through the church all graces flow. Become an association of the church and the grace will flow beyond you. If you don't, when you die, it could die. So that's the wisdom of having an association. There's a grace yeah. to it. It's not a profitable, I'm nothing against travel agencies, but it's not a profitable <laughs> travel agency. It's not a tour group. It is a hospitality. It's a service in the church dedicated to serving at Lord's and at home. Now, having said that, there are people who do come and say, I'm deeply moved here and I would like to volunteer and they'll vet them out if they need them or not. But that's not that's not the proper way to do it. That's, just, that's one of those... God incidents, graces that would come. I want to say, though, on the other side of that, that in May, when the Sovereign Order is bringing the sick people to Lourdes, they have volunteers who are helping them. And the same thing with us at Lourdes Volunteers. That's our name is the two words. If you Google it, www.lordsvolunteers.org. So when we bring the sick, we have doctors and nurses. But it takes, it takes the whole family of the church. It mm. takes all of us lay people. Um, some are there as companions. Some are there as caregivers. So what's the difference? A companion goes inside the bathroom or a companion stays outside the bathroom door. A caregiver is willing to go in and help a person, you know, put on their pajamas or help them. And then there's the medical supportive care, which is, is an addition. People to push in the wheelchairs. The people in the wheelchairs are, are to help. It's, we, we serve all the meals. So for us, we don't stay in the hotels. That's what the, you know, Malta and the others do that. We stay in the hospital bed facility that's right there overlooking the grotto that Pope John Paul stayed in. Well, now St. John Paul II. Mm. But um, so the, we have to take care of all the dining and housekeeping. And it's all of us together. We do all the music ministry. We have one priest for every 25 people on pilgrimage because they really need that time of the priest, especially the sick mm. and dying, especially those who are far away from the church. Um, a lot of people are trying to reconcile things in their lives and they're coming on the pilgrimage um, to, to, to kind of pull it all together before they die. And that, you know, so we have people come from all walks of lives. Um, you know, one of the chapters of the book is called Andrea's Wish, and it's about a young woman who comes with us. And she writes this passionate letter when she gets home. I wish, um, and she has a great experience there, that um, a really profound experience at the end of her life in Lourdes that she doesn't expect. But she writes this letter and she says, I wish everyone who needed to go could go. Mm. And from that, people at her funeral a few weeks later, after she came home from Lourdes, they made donations for Andrea's Wish. There was no Andrea's Wish. We didn't have oh. a fund. But after her, we do it. It's called Andrea's Wish. So people who can't afford to go that, you know, but really need to get there. So, yeah. you know, there's 
if, if God's calling you to Lourdes, if Our Lady's whispering to you to come, then, um, you know, Bernadette used to say, by the way, she didn't have an appointment. She just felt a pull to go. So I say in the pilgrimage, Our Lady has called us here. Maybe Father invited you. Maybe Matt did. Maybe, you know, I met you or somebody else did and said, come on, let's go to Lourdes. But it's really Our Lady that's calling us to Lourdes because we need a grace. And she's always, always bringing us to her son in the sacraments. But, um, you know, I say some people, I say, oh, well, maybe a couple of husbands here got pushed. I don't know. But you know, <laughs> you're being pulled to the grotto. And, um, you know, she's not going to invite you and not make a way. And also, can you imagine the mother and God invites you to come to the grotto and you don't receive anything? You go home empty handed? It's impossible. Mm -hmm. Everybody receives a grace. Everybody does. Some of us, it takes a while for it to sink in. You know, the Lord's water's there, but it takes mm -hmm. a while to sink in. But everybody leaves there with a grace. So it's really, there's different ways to volunteer. You can volunteer for the sanctuary to welcome the pilgrims coming. Or you can, you know, we have a youth program with teenagers in June. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a catechetical, the whole catechesis program based on that service. And then we have the, for St. John's University, Franciscan University. So, you know, a, a young adults that come with us and volunteer for the sanctuary. And then also we have the nursing program with Franciscan for the nursing students to get, you know, credit oh, hours nice. at no cost to them for coming with us to serve the sick. And hey, any medical professionals listening, there's always, um, you know, we, we'll, we'll sit in the office and we'll have, you know, I, I look around and the, the people in the office are, they're crying. What's wrong? All of them just hung up from parents calling because their children were diagnosed terminally ill. And mm. they're all crying. I said, we have to stop right now. We have to pray for a pediatrician. So we pray and the phone's ringing. You think we got to finish this prayer. Got to finish this prayer. Pick up the phone. Hi, I'm a pediatrician. That really happened. <laughs> wow. I'm not joking. That really happened. And we needed her. So, yeah. you know, it's just, you know, so if you feel a pull or, you know, a need to come or you want to know more about Lords, it's, you know, well, this book is about these extraordinary experiences that, like I said, none of them are related to each other. They're all completely different. But woven in there, Father, having served and you, Matt, that are going to come and serve, you're going to see that there's... Um, she has spoken, Matthew. This is happening. That's it. It's it's going to happen. I didn't, I didn't realize you also had the gift of prophecy. <laughs> well, you say, we say Our Lady has a manifest and she knows who's going. And they mm. say, but Marlene's always writing all over it. So at any rate, are. But, um, you know, you'll see the beautiful um, ministry of service is woven throughout this. A lot of the people who yeah. came that had these experiences came as volunteers they came helping somebody else you know so um it's it's just you know there's a lot of wonderful books about the 70 miracles but i think the stories that are in here will resonate with people because they're things that happen or we would love to happen to each one of us every day mm. man that's great um well, real quick, I just have one one more question sure. here um and it was something i was i was looking at uh with with the book the three P's of the Lord's <laughs> message. Uh, what are the three P's? Good question. So prayer. You know, when we see Bernadette and Our Lady in the grotto the first time, there's no talking. It's total silence. The mm. first time they meet and the second time they meet, it's silence. And, you know, I love Pope Benedict XVI, Pope Emeritus, says that um, we need the silence in our hearts to pray. And, you know, look at us today. We've all got, you know, earbuds. Everybody's got earbuds. Even the teachers have the earbuds, not just the students. You know, to find that silence of prayer. And Bernadette and Our Lady make the sign of the cross. And Bernadette makes such a beautiful sign of the cross from that day forward. She makes it slowly, amply, with all of her heart. 
Um, it's a true prayer, not just a thing you do at the beginning and the end of a prayer. So prayer is a is a huge and probably the first most profound, you know, out of out of Lords, the message of Lords is, is prayer. And then the second one is um, you know, I, I think also procession is really important because we're all proceeding somewhere, you know, and, and not to confuse a procession and a parade. A parade is look at us, look at what we've accomplished. And it's a good, you know, it can be for very good things, good reason. A procession is we're going somewhere. And there's two processions in Lourdes. There's the Eucharistic procession, which I'd never been to one before. I didn't know what a Eucharistic procession was. One of the stories in the books about a woman who's um, in a coma from a bee sting. She's allergic to bee stings and doesn't know it, gets stung in the throat. And she talks about, you know, uh, when she's, you know, in the coma, she's, you know, they think she's going to die. She she sees the Eucharistic procession at Lourdes because she's a volunteer there in the Piscines. And she says, that's it. That's how you go to heaven. You just follow the Holy Eucharist. You just you just go right there. So the procession is beautiful. It takes us to the Holy Eucharist. And the one in the evening, we're praying the rosaries. We're meditating on the moments in the life of Christ. And it brings us right to the doors of the church facing the tabernacle. So prayer and procession, those are probably the um you know somewhat more of the joyful mysteries but the other one is penance and you know that's a tough sell like chastity these days but penance is you know penance is where it's at it really is because any of us knows uh, no matter who we are we have something that we are enduring or suffering or or living within our life you know it could be the thing that you wish you could change um, and another person. My husband says that's, you know, sometimes we marry our penance, right? So, um, so we get to work on his parents. But, you know, so it's um, what is this thing in our life that's maybe grinding us, you know, or his forefather. He was, he was hear a lot of these things in confession, Father. I love but, it, uh, though. <laughs> sometimes we so, marry our penance. It's beautiful. Yeah. Matt, how's Renee feel about that? <laughs> I think the penance that she and you know she inherited by marrying me would be my total inability to listen. <laughs> what? <laughs> Get it? Nice. Uh, you too. Yeah. Nice one. Yeah. So um, although I've listened pretty well this episode, so. oh, I'm glad to hear that. But in, with the penance, though, notice she doesn't tell Bernadette to go get a penance. She doesn't give Bernadette a penance. You know. All of us already has a penance, you know, so Father, you can give us, a, you know, they say penance in the confessional that we can offer prayers, you know, to try to repair the damage we've done. We're forgiven mm-hmm. for it. Now we've gone to confession, but we, we're trying to make that repair. So we can do that through offering good works. We can do it through, you know, an apology. We can do it through praying. There's lots of things, almsgiving. There's a lot of things we can do, but, you know, penance can have a different meaning, but she doesn't tell Bernadette to go get one. This is a poor girl who's hungry. You know, she doesn't have to tell her to go get a penance. None of us has to go find one to live the message of Lord's. All of us have one hmm. and we can offer that. For sinners, because that's the bottom line. We're there to pray for sinners. So to pray beautifully, simply, and to, you know, the sign of the cross. Bernadette says we pray this prayer well, we can go to heaven. It's the blessed trinity. So, um, you know, it's prayer, penance, and procession. Where are we going? None of us are getting out of this lifetime alive. Where are we going and how are we getting there? And that's what Lourdes brings us to in that pilgrimage. I wish I knew I knew these these three prayer penance and and, uh, and procession, uh, you know, just a, a few months ago. And you're talking about the the procession and this woman with with the bee sting. I had a a kid here, and uh, she's in our, our middle school youth group, and they were running around out on the field, and she got stung by a bee right in her neck. 
And so she came up and, and we're kind of looking at, at the bee sting and everything. And, and I wish that I had something about procession, like follow Jesus. Like this, this woman who you're describing has this beautiful realization to follow Jesus to heaven. I said to this poor little sixth grader, I said, I think we're going to have to amputate. Uh, <laughs> and, and so I really wish that I had these because that would have been much better advice. I think follow Jesus to heaven. And that's the way to go. She was fine. It's just a little bee sting. She was, she was okay. And she wasn't allergic. Thank well, this woman was um, allergic to them and didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> right. so that's how she wound up in the coma. But what's Man. really extraordinary is how she is still alive to even get to the hospital. That's the amazing part yeah. of the first chapter. It's just incredible. Well, and then this idea that all of us already has a penance. Yeah. Uh, that's that's a, a profound realization. And I, I don't think we often recognize that. We, th we think too often, I've got to go do something. I've, I've got to find something that I can do. Um, or I have to be assigned the penance. Or it's got to be something really extraordinary. We don't often realize that there's there's a way for us to to atone either for our own sins or to make an offering to God as a as a sacrifice of something that's happening right now in our own lives. That is such an important thing, and and I love the way that you bring in Bernadette to that. That Saint Bernadette, uh, a poor girl who suffered tremendously in, in her life, uh, if not physically, then at, at the very least because her her family was was so poorly treated in in their own town, and then eventually even in the convent she's treated poorly and she suffers with mm -hmm. with illness there um but here's this this realization that she doesn't have to go looking for a penance that she actually has one that she can that she can live and that she can offer to the lord that's i think that's very powerful i love it wow i mean it's it's exactly what the uh the man that you met in the in the grotto that he said you know i've been here seven times yeah right and i'm i'm not praying for myself anymore i'm not here for me Right, it's that grace to offer the penance of his visible tumors, hmm. you know, for someone else. Yeah, yeah that's really profound. That yeah. really is. Imagine that grace. Imagine being that's on amazing. the other end receiving that grace of his sacrifice. Yeah. yeah. So, Marlene, to to the person who has not yet been to Lords, what do you say? Giddy up. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's because father's a cowboy, they said, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, wow. let's be serious. I would say if you haven't been to Lourdes, it's an extraordinary grace and privilege to go. Not everybody does. Not everybody uh, can for different reasons. Um, it's not impossible. I would have thought it was impossible. Mm. Like, you know, and people say, oh, I don't know. I, said, I had my business card, you know, my friend's business card plucked out of a fishbowl and I went. So it, it's with God, all things are possible. But if you can't go, you know, Bernadette said after she left the grotto and entered religious life, uh, she knew she would never come back to the grotto again, heaven on earth. And she said, I go to the grotto every day. I close my eyes and I go to the grotto of my heart. Mm -hmm. So that's something we can do. We can take ourselves there and the grotto of our hearts. We can live the message of Lord's we're home. You know, we have some people that they come and help us in the airport as we're getting ready to leave because we got to get from one terminal to another terminal. There's you know, we've got to help the people that are there that need their medications and things. So we have airport hospitality. They never go. They're just there to help us get out of the airport, get on the aircraft. So yeah. some people don't go, um, but it doesn't mean that the grace isn't there for us. And also Lord's Water. I'd like to say, you know, Father and Matt, that we'll send a little bottle of Lord's Water to anybody who mm -hmm. asks. We bring it back. It's full, undiluted Lord's Water. We have it shipped over, and we're happy to send that. And, what, and you know, they asked Bernadette, how much do we need? She said, one drop in faith. And I'd even go on beyond that and say, not to go beyond the same, but I'd go on and say, sometimes it's not even our own faith. I know people who've taken this water that had no faith, but someone else's faith for them. 
is, you know, what brought them the water and the grace. Mm -hmm. So um, I'd say if, you know, giddy up, I'm serious about that. You know, come on, let's go. There's a way for you to go. You can come as a volunteer. You can come as a pilgrim. You can um, come and serve on the pilgrimage. Uh, you can just come with us. You can just make that journey to Lourdes or go on another kind of tour that you get to go by, as you said, Father. First, A lot of people come as a tourist the first time. They don't even come as a pilgrim. And they do a drive-by kind of thing. And, um, you know, so some people hitchhike like you do, Father, like a bit <laughs> ride. I, I wouldn't recommend well, that, but I know I wasn't going to hitchhike. I was figured I'd find a train or something, and then it just happened <laughs> that there, there were people who were offering me a ride instead. I said, well, that's yeah. probably better than riding the train. It is, yeah. But it, it was. It was a great that was meant for you to be there. That is it way. bad that I do want to try hitchhiking at least once? Like I, I want to try it. My my dad used to hitchhike from from. He went to college in Maine, and he would hitchhike home every once in a while, uh, in the in the you know late sixties and seventies to like make a visit home. So yeah. he would just hitchhike. And I'm like, how how did you do that? He goes, I just yeah. did it. And he would, he would just, I just, I decided I wanted to go home for the weekend. So he'd hitchhike. I'm like, that's crazy. Yeah. I, I kind of want to try it someday. I. <sighs> I don't okay, know father, that it's a good idea. Enough. I'm not suggesting that like we ought to do this, but like, yeah. th there's okay, this part It's a mother, father, I have to say. Just, <laughs> just hitch a ride with us, father. <laughs> I don't suggest you go on a holy hitchhiking out there. <laughs> but, um, you know, and I'd say, I, I don't know what you uh, meant, because I, I really do hope you will come to Lourdes. And I don't know. I, father, would, I would genuinely love to. I, I mean, I actually, funny enough, I have Lourdes water that I use, oh. I, I think, on a daily basis, you know. It's either that or holy water, and I bless my wife with it, and we're expecting in May, and I bless my son with it, oh. and you know, so it's I'm I use it pretty regularly, um, yeah, yeah, and I've I've been I've had the privilege to share, like I've I for some reason I ended up with like six bottles of holy water from Lords, <laughs> and so I've been able to give some to some people, which is great. Um, I would love to, I would love to eventually go. I'm, again, we're having a child and under two months <laughs> so i'm not sure if it's in the cards very soon but uh, i know babies love lords so it's great yeah yeah, yeah. dunk them um, right in the water if there's you know anything I mean? if it's there's so... anything everybody really likes it's when there's a baby on their flight it's so beautiful right yeah you get so yeah. excited or a you baby know. you know in the water yeah, yeah. Yes. well and also two so. babies fly they used to fly for free for under the age of two so you know they're... hey yeah. hey and they I'll famously do, do well on money. six hour flights it's kind of like hitchhiking but in the air <laughs> Holy hitchhiking, Father. Yeah, yes. yeah. You know, if God has a plan have, for you, he'll get you there. I have a question. Um, mm -hmm. How does France react to this? Like, is there is there great belief in Our Lady of Lords mm. in France? Well, that's a, well, that's a really big question to ask because there, of course, is. Um, I assumed when I went that everybody in France knows all about Lords. And that's not really true um, mm. in a way. <laughs> but most people I meet, either their grandmother went or their parents went right. or they went once. So they will have an awareness. But I find they are very moved by our faith to travel so far often. Mm. And I have mm. a lot of wonderful French friends that uh, and people that we've met over the years. And, um, you know, I think there is a, just a foundational um, understanding that Lourdes is a holy place. You know, I, I was in Paris um, in a taxi, uh, just it was not too long before COVID, and the taxi driver asked me where I was going. And I said, oh, I'm, I'm in French. I said to him, and I don't speak French well, but so it was obvious I'm not a French speaker, but I, I just told him I was going to Lourdes. And he said to me, 
I love this place of Lourdes. And I said, I'm so happy to hear that. Do, do you go before? And he goes, I go there whenever I can. And he said, I love this place. He said, lady, do you know I'm a Muslim? And he, I, I said, yes, I could see that he was. And he said, I love this place. I said, can I ask why? And he said, because there's such true peace there. Mm. And I want this peace. I go there. He goes, besides, it's what everybody says. If you go there and you're sick, you're cured, or you leave with the gift to accept it. So it works either way. <laughs> I thought that's so wow. practical. You know, and I meet so many people like that. So I think there's a foundational, you know, kind of, um, I don't want to say agreement or understanding, but just a deeply entrenched knowledge that Lord's is there right. and it's holy. Um, and I think that there's a spring of faith that's really happening in France and uh, a new devotion there. So I think wow, it's that's great. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. That's great. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, it's just because it's interesting because in my head, right, it's like, how could you possibly not believe? You know, you see you see people who can't walk go to this place, you know, quote unquote, up the street from you, you know, and then they start walking. And then there's people coming from other countries who can't walk and they go to this place and they walk away walking, you know, so it's like I, I just wasn't sure but I'm also not surprised. I'm not surprised that the answer wasn't like a total yes, you know, uh, because we find we find excuses for things as people. But I'm also glad to realize that even even the people who aren't necessarily, you know, super faithful, who aren't Catholic, who aren't even Christian can recognize it. Yeah. I think that's powerful, too, you know, yeah. just like Christ. You know, I said at the beginning, he, he performed miracles to bring people to faith. Well, like faith can be a seed at first, too. You know, that's a seat of faith in that guy and that taxi driver. Right. You know, so that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. That's fantastic. Well, the book is Everyday Miracles of Lords, 20 Extraordinary Experiences Along the Way to the Grotto. The author is Marlene Watkins. She's our guest today. Marlene, thank you. This has been thank great. You You're so, so generous to give us this time. And I'm going to have to get you down here to Fairfield for the book tour. We'd love it, Father. We'll talk about that after we finish recording, but let's yeah. let's, let's work that out. I think that would be awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. This is The Tangent. I'm Father Sam Kachuba. I'm Matt Sparazza. And this is Marlene Watkins. She's been a great guest. God bless you.